From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to a full hour of sports analytics here on Sirius XM. One hour, a, a, a thin down, a stream down version for the summer we're experimenting with. We'll see how it goes. We're going to test the limits of that experimentation this week because this week is going to be our college football preview show. Week zero, dead ahead. Week zero, right now. Weekend zero, dead ahead. We're going to go ahead and jump into the college football preview and talk to a couple of our longtime favorite guests in any sport, but the necessary guest for college football, Bill Conley here in the first half of the show, Stephen Godfrey in the second half of the show. Inconveniently receiving phone calls as we open the show. That's okay. It's a podcast. It happens. Kate Massey hosting with my longtime collaborators, Eric Bradlow and Audie Weiner. Glad to have you guys aboard. Shane Jensen is away this week. Shane will be back. And we're delighted to welcome on for, I don't know, the 37th time, <laughs> Bill Conley. How are you this afternoon, Bill? I'm very good. How are you? Good. Real good. If I'm talking to you, I'm even better. If I'm talking to you because it's college football preview show, <laughs> it's about as good as I can get. Appreciate you making time for us. We know it's a busy time of year for you. What? What? How are you balancing all the things in your head right now? You just mentioned that you've got a U.S. Open that's a tennis tournament <laughs> preview that's launching like tomorrow or something. How do you do that in the middle of this time of the college football calendar? Well, the funny thing about this time in the college football calendar is I've written everything I'm going to write. Um, I usually finish like two weeks early. And so got all the preview stuff out, got all my most important players and ifs list and all the kind of the annual pieces that I do in July and August. Um, and so now we're kind of cramming in some fun other stuff. I do have the tennis piece. I'm, I've got a big soccer overreaction, early season overreaction piece I'm working on. Um, gonna do a top 50 high school teams ever list for Friday's uh high school football stuff. And um and so this is just this is like creativity time for me. The last second, just get out everything I wanted to do this summer before we actually start doing the week-to-week stuff. Okay, hold on. So one, I want to acknowledge that the reason you do that is you start writing these pieces. You do you cover every FBS program and you start yeah. in like February or some absurd thing. So props to you for getting that done. Also, high school, you've already been pushing the limits. You went FBS and then you went FCS. And for all I know, you've gone like division three. Oh, yeah. got some division three stuff in there. Oh, and now definitely. you're going high school. <laughs> well, this, yeah, this is probably a more of a, a one-off kind of deal. But, you know, last year to celebrate the 50th anniversary of freshmen, true freshmen being eligible to play. Well, I don't know, celebrate. We didn't have a party. But to commemorate it, to commemorate a very big uh, rule change, um, I did like the top 50 true freshman seasons ever. And so apparently that's the thing. Once a year, I'll revisit something that's more of the recruiting or high schoolish kind of uh, thing. Okay. Um, and, and this one just sounded fun. It was one that we had talked about for a while and hadn't ever gotten around to. So I'm getting around to it. Did you say top 50 high school programs or years, high school years, like individual teams? Okay. So what year did you pick for the Odessa Permian Panthers? (laughs) Um, It was 88 Dallas Carter, 89 Odessa Permian. Uh, They're both, they're both on the list, like forties, I think not, not like not top five or anything like that. And it was hard because Texas high school is so in terms of narrative and and known history. It's so much more like we know so much more about Texas high school football than anything else that it became like it was hard not to have a list of with like 27 Texas teams. I had to limit myself to like 10 and actually share it with the rest of the country. Fair enough. But I mentioned premier. Of course, many of you know that that's the school that Friday night lights was based on. And that year, the year the book was written, I think was maybe 81. It's probably early eighties. And you come in, you're coming in for the late eighties. I think it was eight. It was 88. Cause I think it was the Dallas Carter team that I'm talking about. Oh. I hope it is. Cause that's how, that's what I'm going to write about it. It's the, it's the, it's the Dallas Carter team that beats Permian. This is exactly what you expected to talk uh, about <laughs> for having me on. Um, well, I, I just want to confess. I was, <laughs> I was thinking I was a few years after the book. I was a few years before the book is what happens. So um, anyway, so yeah, I'm happy to talk Permian football, West Texas football, hundred <laughs> percent. Um, listen, before we dive into teams, you are one of the real um, top analysts in the game and you're probably the highest profile quantitative um, analyst in college football. What, 
and and you know, I know how these models work. You did a lot of the work years ago. Every now and then, you probably do a pretty healthy rejigger. Every year, you're doing minor jiggering. Yeah. How are you thinking about your model right now? Like, what what kind of refinements or what kind of issues or even what kinds of things do you know you're not getting in there that you struggle with? Like, what's the frontier for you in your model right now? Yeah, it's as far as frontier goes. Like, you know, I don't have any sort of. It's not like soccer or maybe some other sports where it's like, I wish I had a player based model. Like that's, that's pretty, that's college football is not going to really ever, I'd be impressed if somebody ever got anywhere incredibly deep with a player based model, or if they can, they're a lot more uh, advanced than I am with this stuff. But I think what I have found in general is just little things like the, the, you know, figuring out how to tamp down the outliers, figuring out how to adjust for opponents. I'm always kind of, reading or just envisioning some other way to do that. And I tinker with it. And this summer I made some reasonably sized tweaks to my historic numbers. Um, but yeah, I think <laughs> if if somebody can, can get further along with the, at the player level, I, I'm, I, I want to see it because I don't think it's in me to do such a thing. Well, your former colleague, Paul Saban uh, had a college football model ESPN. When he was there. He was trying to crank together something real Bayesian, um, yeah. You know, that's where pro football has gone. And right. there's so many more teams and so many more players in college. It's 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 almost unimaginable thing about putting numbers on yeah. every one of them. But, you know, that's definitely the direction we've we've seen analytics go. I mean, yeah, used for, to pro pro. I could absolutely see it happen. I just don't know how I mean, I just, my brain can't comprehend the idea of somebody doing it well for college with that many different players. But I could be wrong. Well, Bill, set aside the the analytics of it. Just tracking these players is a challenge yep. enough. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> 2,000 players change schools. 2,000 college football <laughs> players at the FBS level change schools. How? Do, what have you done? I mean, because you do account for, you know, very important part of your model is recruiting rankings, say, yep. or production last year. So, and now all that production is moving from one place to another. Or those recruiting rankings from two years ago are on a different roster now. Yeah. How are you handling all that? Well, the biggest thing is I don't think I can write previews in February anymore. Um, I, you know, cause basically I'll spend, you know, the, the, the calendar hasn't really changed for me. It's usually, you know, the season ends uh, in like the three weeks or two or three weeks after, um, a- after the football season ends, I'll start playing like updating rosters and changing my spreadsheets to account for all the, you know, the players leaving and all that other stuff and, and figuring out who sent out rosters and try to update those and everything. And then, um, you know, start writing the previews in February, but I had to basically do all that again in July once the official rosters were actually official um, right. and update all those things again. And I found like, you know, 10, 15, 20 guys per school uh, that had changed since last time. I wrote an AAC preview, uh, American Athletic Conference preview in late April. And I mentioned, I think within a week and a half, something like eight or nine of the players I had mentioned, including a lot of in the my 10 favorite players section had entered the transfer portal to go to, uh, to a bigger school. Yeah, and yeah, so top AAC, you've got better schools you can play for. Yeah, no. And it, it just re- like that preview in specific just got wrecked. And so we're going to, we'll see what the plan is for next year, but I don't think I can start these till mid May. Now there's just no point because it's just, you know, we, I realize people aren't necessarily demanding 100% accuracy in a Mac preview in like March, um, but I am, and I, I want to know what I'm writing is actually going to last more than a week. And I, I can't, I couldn't handle what was happening this year. Yeah. Yeah. Bill, I was just going to ask you, since we're an analytics show and now everything's about AI, um, <laughs> is there an opportunity to, do you think in the future to automate a lot of what you do in the sense of whether it's transfer among players or evaluating player video or players <laughs> based on using automated algorithms and stuff? I'm not saying that we don't want to get rid of the art part of the science, but is there a large part of what you do that you think could be automated in the future? Well, I, I do know that I need to figure out how to, you know, do a better job of scraping rosters and com- like looking at them automa- like automatically and, or, you know, creating an automated process to, to figure out when things have changed. But no, I think this isn't exactly AI, but I think what we're seeing is as video technology gets a little better and you can right. actually see uniforms a little better uh, companies. I know like StatsBomb, um, and they're not the only ones are, are doing a lot more with what amounts to quick player tracking, not like the, you know, you're not wearing the catapult things. You don't have to get that GPS data, but you can just tell on the screen with, with increasing accuracy, how fast somebody's running, how, how fast somebody threw the ball, that kind of thing. And that I think is, 
I, I think we're getting to a point where, again, this isn't exactly the same thing as AI by any means, but we're getting to the point where there's a lot more automated or very quick data collection. And that's something that I'm, I'm not sure how that will change things really like for me, for instance, but I'm kind of, I'm excited about it. I think it'll be really, really interesting if I could get my hands on data like that. It's, it's surely that's going to happen down the road. And surely that'll be a huge save, saver for you, especially the more these guys move around. Bill, let's, let's put you on the spot uh, on some teams and conferences around the country. Um, let's talk some actual teams. Um, at the very highest level, just how do you think about coming in? What do you think is notable just as you look across the entire landscape this year? Like what thematically, thematically, how would you characterize this season? I, it's always interesting to me when all almost all of the top teams change quarterbacks. Um, you know, some years that that's a theme one way or the other. Some years, a lot of them don't, some years, a lot of them do. And this is a, this is a do here because just looking at like my SP plus projections, number one's Georgia, new quarterback. Number two is Ohio state, new quarterback, number four, Alabama, number six, Penn state, number seven, Clemson, number eight, Tennessee, all have new quarterbacks. Um, you know, there are plenty of veterans, especially out in the pac 12, um, a lot of them are saddled with really bad defenses, which um, is why they're not, they weren't in the top seven or eight or whatever that I just mentioned. But, um, but that means that's an opportunity for some sort of change. Some of those guys, some of the new quarterbacks where we see new starting quarterbacks win the Heisman all the time, win the national title all the time, but not all of them are going to be awesome. And um, every single time you change that, like when you change a head coach or coordinator or anything else, it's a it's a chance for for a drop off, if nothing else. And so curious who clears these hurdles well and who, um, you know, who who kind of starts over this year. You make a good point. I about to jump in. just but, but let me just say you make a good point because some of them will be fine, but yeah. we pretty sure all of them won't be. And right. so it's likely that quarterback trouble. Here's a simple way to think about it. And I haven't heard this quite said we can be pretty sure that the quarterback situation is going to take one of those teams, one of those high, high yeah. teams. I mean, people talk about Penn State, Al- I mean, Alabama, Ohio State, and Georgia, top three talented rosters in the country, all new quarterbacks. Quarterback trouble is probably going to take one of those teams out. Yep. And that's uh, that's that's interesting and, and refreshing, frankly. Adi. And and honestly, sorry, the the most the, the, the team I have the most questions about of those is Alabama. And I'm not used yeah. to that. I'm not used yeah. to saying that sentence. Ever. Um, I mean, just look at the simple fact that, you know, I think I've been projecting teams since like 2009 or so. I don't remember the first year I did preseason projections. I don't know if I've ever had Alabama lower than second and they're fourth this year. So that alone is just a, an enormous development, even if they're still going to be absurdly talented across the board. So my question is probably focused on what you might call confidence intervals in your prediction (laughs) predictions, but the more, more, I guess, a specific question is how do you know enough about a quarterback to get an accurate forecast with all these quarterbacks moving around in their college and you know there's so much system and 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 team dependencies and uh, yeah. what what do you what do you what are you saying here when we know quarterbacks are so important so how much accuracy do you have well i you know what's funny about college football and this could be changing the, the transfer portal and everything else could be kind of changing this landscape but I mean, the the best thing about college football in general has been that, you know, if we're talking about Alabama's uh, starting a new uh, quarterback, he's probably going to be awesome. Ohio State, he's almost definitely going to be awesome. It really is the recruiting effects and the systems that these top schools have in place where you just – there's so many five-star receivers they're going to be thrown to. They're going to be protected by four-star offensive linemen. You just, the, the situation is so friendly and there, you know, whoever wins that race is going to be a four-star guy who beat out two other four-star guys that just kind of, we know in general that these guys are going to be really good. And even Alabama, I said, I had questions about Alabama. It's going to be four-star Tyler Bookner versus four-star Jalen Monroe, uh, Milrow versus either four or five-star Ty Simpson. They, nobody's come along. I don't think it's going to be a drop off from Bryce young by all accounts, but he's probably going to be awesome. Whoever it is. And they're going to, their floor is probably nine wins or, or 10 um, no matter what. So that really is, we, we don't necessarily know that like the breakout stars that, that pop up sometimes. Um, but when you're a five-star guy beating out other five-star guys at a five-star school, you're probably going to be really good. And, and that's, that's, that's more confident than it should be, but that's the way it's been. 
So, Bill, maybe my question, just following up on Adi's, is trying to get an idea of magnitude of effect size. So, for example, I think most people would say at least preseason, the likely best quarterback in college football could be Caleb Williams, right? right. USC. Yeah. Is that enough? That you, if I told you at the end of the season USC was number one because he just outplayed those other quarterbacks, is there enough? I'll call it exceedance for Caleb Williams to make up the difference between let's call it the sixth or seventh ranked USC team and these better teams. Or no, he'd have to have the greatest college football season ever in mankind to make up that difference. Well, knowing um, Lincoln Riley's history of defense, yeah, he would have to have the greatest quarterback <laughs> season in the history of mankind uh, to get to number one. I mean, he won the Heisman last year and I, you know, USC, I don't remember where I think only they only got into the twenties in SP plus last year. They had like the number one defense and an eighty something uh, or the number one offense and an eighty something defense. And you know, that's partially that's Lincoln Riley's history. He's only had a good defense once and it was in the COVID year. Um, he really believes in his defensive coordinator, Alex Grinch, but you know, what I've said about Alex Grinch is if he has three great pass rushers, he'll figure everything out. But if any defensive coordinator in the country has three great pass rushers, he's probably going to have a good defense, too. So I don't wow. if we're ranking like replacement value coordinators here, I'm not real sure uh, that that Alex Grinch would rank very high on that list. But Riley hasn't built that culture. Uh, so this is an either. important. I think for our listeners, this is an <clears throat> important statistical point. You're saying there isn't really enough exceedance, even in the most right. important position that's going to make up for even the number six or seven team to potentially reach number one. Right. And, but, you know, I, I guess on the flip side of that, if they even have like a top 30 defense, they're a top five team because their offense is pretty much good. If he's in the lineup, their offense is going to be awesome because I, you know, I just said bad things about Lincoln Riley. Lincoln Riley is, is one of the two or three best offensive coaches in the country on the other side of that. Uh, and Caleb Williams is, is an absolutely awesome. He really does. I hate comparing guys to, to NFL greats, but he gives you such Patrick Mahomes vibes when he starts to leave the pocket and improvise. And it's just the scariest thing in the world. Uh, if you're rooting against USC anyway. And um so that's that's kind of the other side of that is, you know, Alabama typically has top 10 offensive defense. Georgia typically has top fifth, you know, top five defense and top 15 offense or whatever. USC doesn't need that. They just need a good defense, not a great one for them to be a legitimate, if at least contender to make the playoff, if not actually win it. The way you're talking about it, it really does sound like some of those peak Oklahoma teams he had yeah. were yeah. way good enough to get into the playoffs and then almost good enough to win a playoff game, but not quite there. Maybe Grinch, you know, Grinch, they've been together for enough years, maybe, and they've done pull some guys out of the portal. Maybe there'll be yeah. enough defense there. I mean, Eric, you you picked exactly the right school to ask you a question. <laughs> yeah, you know, no, let's this, stay let's oh, stay out there. Let's stay out in the West and and ask. I'm curious how you see. I'm going to put you on the spot for a couple of a couple of questions. Which two teams do you think are going to make that Pac-12 final? People talk about <laughs> kind of the Big Four, but then even after talking about the Big Four, they point at like, well, you know, Oregon State could actually be salty, and oh, by the way, if UCLA's new quarterback turns out well, they could be salty. So you end up with a lot of candidates for this undivisioned uh, conference. Who do you, if you had to pick two right now, who would you pick? I think USC and Oregon. Um, Utah, I mean, I, I don't want to, we always underestimate Utah and I don't think I'm doing that here. I'm just less sure about Utah's quarterback situation right now. They're entering the start of the season. Uh, Cam rising still, nobody seems to trust that he's actually healthy. He tore his ACL in the Rose bowl last year. Uh, Has he not backup, been playing in, in fall camp? Have they not been he, playing at all? Well, he's been, it's been very, very, the reports have been very blurry about what he's doing and what level of strength he's at. Um, and everything else. And, um, you know, his backup got hurt as well. So like they could be that Bryson Barnes kid who has actually filled in for an injured cam rising in each of the last two Rose bowls. He might like, he might start like rising might start and be fine. Nobody seems to know. And so that uncertainty with the schedule early on where there is slight reasonable favorites in a lot of games, but not overwhelming favorites. Like they probably need a, a good quarterback performance to beat Florida. They they will almost certainly need a good uh, quarterback performance to beat UCLA at the end of September. At what point they're going to have that, it's just hard to tell. So I'm kind of dropping them a little bit right now. And I think I'm looking at USC and Oregon. I do think USC, the transfers they added this time, last year, the transfers, 
he added on defense were like one tenth as impressive as the ones he added on offense. Like even on paper before the season, it was like these guys aren't going to do anything. Yeah, uh, yeah. And they didn't. But Bear Alexander, the tackle from Georgia, Mason Cobb, the linebacker from Oklahoma State, I do think that gives them the advantage this year. And so then it really just comes to which defense do you trust, Oregon's or Washington's, because they're both going to have awesome offenses. I yep. think I trust Oregon's a little bit more. Bill, can I just ask a procedural question? When does the transfer portal cl- transfer portal close? So they've been trying desperately to bring order to this situation. Um, of I'll late. make this up. The reason I've thought of this is suppose, you know, you mentioned maybe Utah or whoever it is has an uncertain quarterback situation. Well, maybe someone, I'll make this up, Alabama or somebody announces tomorrow, this is my quarterback. And so whoever's the number two there goes, mm-hmm. what the hell? I'd rather transfer over to Utah or whatever, and maybe I'll start <laughs> if this guy's hurt. You know, I, I, I think – Oof, I, I don't feel confident in saying this because I'm not completely sure. I think that I don't remember where the limit is, like how much how much school has happened already. But like if he did that today and Utah's school hasn't started yet, I don't know when Utah starts. Um, but I think if he decided he could transfer today and he called Utah up and they said, yeah, come on, uh, let's go. Like he could enroll and play. But I don't remember how much school can have passed before he's ineligible to play this year. I mean, mostly they've cleaned it up. When they first opened, it was complete Wild West, and people right. were yeah. They've they've had they have windows now. They have windows yeah. They've got now. two windows, and they're pretty narrow windows, and it's brought a lot, it's brought a lot of order to the situation overall. I've got one. I'm try one hypo, one hypothesis for Pac-12 on you guys. New thought. So people all say you know there are four teams out there, and really five or six. And so is there any? chance that somebody could come out of there with only one regular season loss right. and, and be eligible really for the playoff and people are oh, yeah, they're going to beat each other up but here's a not here's a different spin what if you basically have six chances of somebody really kind of you know flipping flipping a string of heads you have six yeah. chances of somebody getting lucky the schedule breaking just right injuries breaking just right six chances really of some team making it through the regular season with only one loss and then and then all they got to do is win the Pac-12 title game and they're in the playoff. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, you just described the Big 12. Um, that's, you know, Baylor and Oklahoma State, both, almost, especially Oklahoma State, if they'd won, if they'd gotten one more millimeter in the Big 12 title game, they it's possible at least that they would have stolen Cincinnati's playoff spot. They, last, I would, last, I'd, yeah. I'd have been so mad if that happened. I'd been yelling so much for Cincinnati. Um, but Last year's Big 12 is what you mean. Where right, it was just well, yeah, I mean, yeah, two years ago with Oklahoma State, it almost happened. Then last year with TCU and Kansas State, it was the same deal. TCU only lost – uh, they went like five and one and one score finishes or something to that effect. Um, yeah. And and so, yeah, we know it can happen because it's happened two years in a row with the Big 12. And so you could absolutely see the same thing in the Pac-12. How beautiful would it be if it was Oregon State? How poetic and perfect would that be? We can all, we're just all big Oregon State fans this year, right? I, um, I, hate, I hate it so much. And I, the other comforting thought I have is, you know, coming around next year when um, – you know, Oregon State wins the the Mountain West and gets into the playoff as a yeah. as like the eleven or twelve seed in a twelve team playoff. Maybe playing Oregon five seed. There you Oregon go, in the play Oregon. Round. There you go. Let's get let's get going again. Um, <laughs> let let's hit another one other conference, and I feel like you've generally got a pretty good beat on Penn State. You you and your your Franklin, your buddy Franklin, usually have a little <laughs> insight on that. How do you see? Give us the regular season Eastern Division final standings. Yeah, what order I, those three teams in? I love not being sure about this um, because, you know, even though it's the same teams we always talk about, it, it's a lot more fun when there's uncertainty and you've got three teams that are, are in very different situations than they were. You know, Ohio State suddenly is going through an existential crisis because they've lost what, three, four games the last two years. Oh my God, everything's falling apart. But two of those were to Michigan. Um and so, therefore, Ryan Day is in a weird spot. They have all this offensive talent, but everybody's kind of questioning him now. And there's a a funk around the program. And poor C.J. Stroud was like, "Oh, I'm always going to be remembered as the guy who lost to Michigan twice and all that last year." <laughs> yes. um, but they're also going to be awesome. Uh, Michigan's going to be awesome. I don't. I still don't trust their receivers in their pass rush. So I can't. As far as upside goes, I still don't know if they have Georgia level upside, but their floor is the highest in the country, most likely with the way he's just methodically built everything. So they're kind of the sure thing, even if they don't have quite as much upside. And then here comes Penn State with like the greatest sophomore class of all time. Um, 
well, non-Alabama, Georgia, whatever edition, their best sophomore class in a very, very long time yeah. um, with a couple of like two of the the 10 best running backs in the country are sophomores. They have one of the best linebackers in the country who's a sophomore. They, and now they, they're handing the reins to Drew Aller, the you know Paul Bunyan-sized quarterback uh, and five-star prospect um, who – it really seems like this is a, as much just raw upside as Penn state has had in a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And, you know, I don't, they're really interesting this year. They might be even more interesting next year when all those sophomores are juniors, but, and, and you know, maybe change has come to Michigan, Ohio state will be awesome again, obviously, but, um, but they do, they are this massive wild card because they probably have more upside than upside than Michigan at this point. They're just not nearly as proven. Um, they might not be nearly as proven physically in the trenches, especially, uh, and maybe that still makes the difference, but you can really see a range of outcomes when you hand the reins to a, so- uh, a, an unproven massive upside sophomore, a lot of different scenarios play out and a couple of them are Penn state being really, really playoff level. Good. If you had to name them one, two, three regular season. I'm still, I guess, I think Ohio state's going to be a hair better than Michigan, but Michigan's playing Ohio state at home. So I guess that means Michigan, Ohio state, Penn state. Um, but every, all, all, every iteration of that is possible. The second team there is going to be a strong in all likelihood going to be a strong candidate for one of those playoff yeah. spots. It's going to be it's just like it was last year. It's going to be tough to turn them down. Bill, we want to ask you a question. We'll end on a question here that we we'd like to play with in various sports. I don't remember if we've done this in college football or not, but Eric suggests I think he's spot on. How many teams would you need to to give us the field? And who's going to win the whole thing, national championship, and make it a fair bet? How how many teams would you need? If you give us the field and to be, and we kind of, you'd, you'd be happy to, to make that an even bet. So I'm not going to just say Georgia versus the field. Um, we'll take the field. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I, I, I me too. Um, teams don't repeat. That's what I've been. I realize that's not scientific, but just, <laughs> it just doesn't happen. Therefore it doesn't have to happen this year. Um, Reminds me about the two bombs on the plane joke. <laughs> that's right <laughs> um if you want to avoid two you know a bomb on the plane bring bring one on therefore you won't have two <laughs> uh okay how about three i'll say georgia ohio state michigan um and give the field alabama with its random quarterback things and, and lsu and these other teams but i'll take georgia ohio state michigan which one are you taking there that's remarkable that is so concentrated. I mean, in other sports, we're forever, you know, going quite a bit deeper and arguing yep. for going even deeper than it feels. Yep. So how does that one feel to you, boys? Adi, Eric, you want the field? We Are you still interested in the field if you give Bill Georgia, Michigan, and Ohio State? No. <laughs> I, think I'm, I'm, I think I'm taking those three. You want those three? I'll take the field on principle. Um, on principle. I mean, you really – field is 50%, right? So – yeah. Yeah, and uh, those three, I think, have a lot of the problem. What are the What are the current odds? I don't know. What What's I don't know. We I, I don't have massive Peabody numbers in front of me, but that's I don't know. It sounds kind of it sounds strong. I know. I I just looked at mine. I my friend Justin Moore. Um, he he's been helping me with like the the, the bigger uh, simulations and everything, and and he's cr- created his own like heuristics for who makes the playoff, who wins it, and all that uh, based on SP plus. And he has those three teams at forty one percent combined, yeah. and then you add Alabama, and it's fifty one. I I want that to be true. Right? It feels too low. <laughs> feels like those three should be like seventy eight percent. Yeah, it does, especially for um, winning. It's one thing to make yeah. the playoffs because we get right. wild cards in, and it could be anybody. And so the chance of someone making the playoff is extraordinary. How yeah. how many people could make the playoff? But to win it is another yeah. thing. Yeah, my, uh, uh, you're right. At, you're right at fifty percent, Bill. By the way, just okay. using the betting odds, you're okay. right there. Yeah, maybe slight. Maybe you have fifty two forty eight, but it's right there. Yeah. All right, guys, we're going to let Bill go. Uh, Bill, thanks for making time for us. We know it's a busy time for you, even if your business is <laughs> shockingly right. tennis right now. Um, enjoy the enjoy the calm as we roll into actual football, but um, good luck to you getting the season off the ground. Absolutely. Tell Godfrey hi for me. Will do. Bill Conley, ESPN, S&P Plus, one of the best college football writers, observers around and a long time friend of the show. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. 
Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the second half of our sports analytics show here on SiriusXM. This is our annual college football preview show that Cade Massey hosts in with my longtime collaborators, Audie Weiner and Eric Bradlow. Shane Jensen will be back. One of our regular guests, especially for this show over the years, has been Stephen Godfrey, and we are delighted and fortunate that he has made himself available to us. This time of year is crazy for these college football guys. And Stephen, it's always good to see you. Thanks for making time for us. Thanks for having me, as always. I love coming on the show. And I and and it, the greatest endorsement I can give this show is most radio shows drive me nuts, and I learn something when I'm on the show. So not only do I agree to do the show, I enjoy doing it. So it's a very high bar. Thank you, Stephen. Appreciate it. You guys know Stephen from SB Nation, from his podcast, Split Zone Duo. And he has also been writing for the Washington Post, which is a great pickup by those guys and a new platform for him, which makes me excited. Stephen, um, I, I I can't think of you without thinking about Southern football. And so I roll in thinking okay. about Southern Southern questions, even though there's no reason that we have to just focus on that. But okay. you've got good insight into lots of those programs. And so it feels like a, a good time to ask you some um, about some of those guys. So w- one of them is, are you buying the LSU hype? And then closely related, closely related, what is it that makes Brian Kelly such a good coach? And how is it? He must be really good to be able to overcome all the concerns people had about him going into Louisiana. You've got LSU connections. You know that country. It must be shocking, I guess, even to you to see someone so out of place come in there and seeming seemingly have success. What's your analysis of LSU this year? And what can you tell us about Brian Kelly as a coach? Mm, there's a lot there. Uh, well-loved and well-hated simultaneously. Uh, very much the embodiment of the, of the CEO. I think if you were to go on one of these kind of corporate team building retreats, he's your ideal football coach that you bring in to talk to the S&P 500 company. I think he thinks in the same analytical manner as a C-suite guy might. Um, To that end, I think he's extremely good at delegating. I think he's extremely good at staff building. I think he, he learned, especially with having a really mercurial run at Notre Dame, and watching kind of the world change around the Irish um, because the Irish don't change as we know that um, I think he picked up a lot. I, I think he learned a lot about um, having to, I think all great coaches and athletic directors at the highest level right now have incredibly fresh Rolodexes. And I think he's no exception. I think Matt house and, uh, and Mike Denbrock, the defensive and offensive coordinator respectively have done an extremely good job. I think that for all of the discord that was going on and the confrontation between Ed Orgeron and uh, and the new leadership that came in underneath him after that national title, it was never a bare cupboard. I think there was just so there was. It, 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 look, here's the thing about Louisiana: you're you're swimming in politics and perpetuity, usually kind of murkier waters, if you will. Even for them, I think it reached critical mass. All the while, I, I kind of bring all this up to say they didn't really have a personnel deficiency. So Kelly came into a pretty good situation. It wasn't one of those deals where the entire bunch was spoiled or rotten. You know, I've talked on the show before about how Bobby Petrino is exceptional. He was a, always a great example of like he would have a 10 win program performing at his expectations in that level. But they just had that sort of mercenary culture to where, like, as soon as he left, no one else could do anything with it, right? Yeah. Uh, I think LSU has benefited. So, so I think he's benefited from LSU. I think LSU has benefited from his organizational style. All this being said, he's got a huge task in front of him because expectations now have to match his first-year accomplishment. I said this on our show, on Split Zone Duo. It is a gift from the karma gods to beat Alabama in your first year at LSU. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, Double-edged yes, to say the least. Yeah, Steve, yeah. Right. Stephen, I was just going to ask you, since you talked about a number of coaches, how um, how big an effect size do you think the coach is? So wherever you think Brian Kelly may sit in the rank ordering of coaches, if we were to put the best college coach there, if we were to put someone, I don't know, half a standard deviation worse, like are they a national championship team with the best coach? I mean, how big an effect size do you think coaches oh. have at that elite level? And I'll say both 
two two aspects of it. One is the recruiting side, which I think is obviously equally important. But one is let's even give the, this coach the same roster LSU has now. Does their okay. probability go up five percent, ten percent to win the national title if Kirby Smart is the coach there? I don't know. That's a really good question. So what we're trying to we're we're, we're trying to figure out Coach War basically. Yeah. Um, Much better said than I said. Um. Hmm. Conference play win above replacement from a coaching standpoint. What's funny is I would love I would love to noodle out this stat and figure it out. College football is different in that the value prop you would give the coach is half off field and half on. That's why I said words, both. Remember, I, mean, I said two parts. Right, 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 right. Um, off field, I think I think he is amongst that top end, that elite end. However you wanted, however you want to describe it. On field, I think it's a matter of still having not been tested all the way. The funny thing is, is like he wasn't pressed into a ton of big games. Compro- okay, I'm all right. I got I got to catch all this. Some Notre Dame fan is going to find my address when I say this. <laughs> During his time with the Irish, when he was in, for instance, a national title game, the personnel deficiencies were so great that you never tested his sort of strategic bona fides. Yeah. How's that? Okay. Yeah. I'm not saying he didn't have big games at Notre Dame. I'm saying we didn't get to see him, in my opinion, on the grandest of stages with even footing. So, you know, in terms of an in-game strategist, I don't want to say he's untested. He's not. He has experience. But that's where the question that that's where I would have the question mark, right? Yeah. That's where now I I feel like I'm answering my question previously by saying he's done an extremely good job with his coaching staff. Extremely good. I think Denbrock was a very quiet but really successful hire in that that he was at Cincinnati with Fickle, and that's such a fulcrum job where Fickle goes out and recruits a little bit above his skis for for that job at that time in the American, right? They're pulling in like kids from Kentucky, kids from Ohio State. I mean, like the University of Kentucky. Like they're, they're, That's the caliber. Mm-hmm. So they got P5 kids. And then schematically, he's building around a guy like Desmond Ritter at the time where they never did anything exceptional except everything they did was never bad. And then mm-hmm. for Dimbrock to go in, really a calming force for Jaden Daniels as well. Um, and then on the other side, I think it, it's, a, it's a little simpler as it is in the SEC. On defense, bodies win games. Right, it's it's the size, it's the ability for the large bodies to go fast. So mm. now we're getting into physics. I think it's really important. Um, just quickly, I think it's important for our Morton Moneyball fans to recap what Stephen just said to understand that your comment is a really good one and a subtle one. That because the disparity in talent might have been so great, there's no information sure. to have been gained from the loss, and that's really a, a, a real. I just want to reiterate that point. I think it's an important one. So, so, so I've actually. I, 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 yeah, go ahead. Go I've ahead. actually done a little bit of uh, investigation onto this part of this question because obviously one aspect of, of war would be the, the talent development, right? So you all get players coming out of high school and then you want to see, well, where do they end up? And so I did a, a little investigation to see if any school, that's not exactly a single head coach, of course, uh, over about a 10-year period, seemed to overproduce uh, NBA, uh, NFL draft picks relative, relative to the quality of the player that came in in high school. And okay. I, I will confess that I had little power, which is my fancy way of saying not much data to find anything but really big effects. But conversely, I didn't find any big, effect, big effects. So I didn't find anything of significance statistically, which could come out, come as a result of one or two um, possibilities. Either um, just there, there aren't there aren't any teams that are are better than others at producing NFL talent, or right. probably more likely the differences aren't, aren't large enough to to uh, be noticeable given the somewhat smallish data set. Couple things there. So, I think your your data set is definitely I think the issue there, but also they, they move in herds. So in other words, it's a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy and that you usually don't have five-star outliers. Ed Oliver, I think maybe the last one that I can think of where like a five-star kid goes to Houston when they were in the, oh. you know, the American. Oh, well, yeah, no, but I adjusted for that. So what I would do is I would okay. forecast their NFL um, likelihood, essentially their draft position coming out right. of high school. And then I would try to see if there was a school effect huh. that, that over-predicted or under-predicted. Ah, the, the, so game. yeah, the old... Yeah, the trope of uh, we're, we're the we're the personnel program. That's that I love that one. In fact, the last time I heard it was Boston College, and it's not working out well for them. But um, 
We're going to be a player development program. That's what they always say. We're going to be right. a player so development I, I, my, my just my, my, my result, which wasn't back, was between back of the envelope and good. <laughs> More than back of the envelope and not quite yet good. Um, showed essentially nothing statistically significant. And I'm, I'm reiterating to educate yeah. that there's a big difference between failing to find something statistically significant and finding no result. That's different. Okay. Right, right, right. Backing that out, that that what I infer from that, if there is a large player development uh, effect at a given team, it's uh, unlikely because I would have seen that. Um, that's where Adi, I with one with one important caveat, your unit of analysis is school as opposed to coaching. Yes. Oh, yes. Coaching ah, staff. Okay. Okay. Yes. Cool. That's a, okay. That's a big one. Stephen, let's what, let's stay with coaches yeah. for a moment. And I'm, I'm one of the arguably the most uncertain team to forecast this year in the country is Texas A&M and inarguably the most interesting coaching situation in the country is at Texas A&M and you've got to have something to say about this. And I'm really curious how you see it playing out. So Jimbo Fisher, maybe the opposite of the, of the Brian Kelly CEO, you know, he does it that way kind of, of coach. He brings in Bobby Petrino, one of the, most controversial head coaches, you know, fantastic play caller, fantastic offensive mind, supposedly turns over the reins. Jimbo Fisher Man. made his name calling plays, and now he's going to turn over the reins. How do you see – they've got an unbelievably talented roster. Wildly underperformed their roster last year. Tough division, but soap opera in the coaching staff. I'm short Jimbo Fisher in almost all circumstances. I'm curious yes. how this – and what your position is. And that's not even the burn orange, is it? That's just, that's, that's I mean, not the burn I orange. The, no, I think the math backs it up, to be honest with you. Um, by the way, we can talk about how good Texas looks this year if you really want to get anxiety. Um, <laughs> the, um, even I've decided my, this is the year to not be anxious yeah. about it. This year, I'm just going to like have high expectations and not worry about it. I'm just going to let it roll. Cade, Cade, God bless you. I, hey, I'm an Atlanta sports fan. I love that logic too. It's great. Um, they make medicine for people like us. Um, <laughs> Here's my defense. I, I've done every bit and joke that I can about this pairing, this offensive pairing. But here is my I'm going to try and be analytical about it, not just be glib or act like I'm on Twitter. College football at its core, in terms of a management approach, is about the reduction of uncertainty. That's not always the case in sports. I think other sports, you can argue it's about maximizing efficiency. OK, baseball is a great example, right? Because you have a large amount of games and you're trying to maximize efficiency down a stretch. Like the concept of money ball is to buy wins via runs, via et cetera. In college football, I think the money ball has been a, as proven by the Saban tree of which is now Saban smart. We can say we can, we can add the, 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 the hyphen in there. Um, and Fisher's part of this. This is where I'm going. You reduce uncertainty. That is w- once you meet your personnel goals, your funding goals, your, your, your assistant staffing goals, the next move is not to be a schematic genius because the schematic geniuses in this sport are often relegated to the FCS or the Ivy league or just somewhere at random. I think the true quote, you know, what the, the people we call great right now reduce uncertainty. Is there nothing more uncertain than the agency of Bobby Petrino against the agency of (laughs) the head coach. And I, I, again, I know like I'm setting myself up for uh, 20 million jokes, but I've told them all right. Why would you enter into a situation? We don't, we've never run this experiment before. Would you do this? If you were launching a space shuttle, would you uh, screw that? If you were launching a rocket, an unmanned rocket, and you spent all this money, hundreds of millions of dollars to launch a rocket, would you run it with a scenario without running a simulation first? Would you, would you not test it? This is like, using this this is like going off on a major almost billion dollar investment at texas a&m i'm serious without testing a fundamental core part of how this engine's going to run because and i'm not being over dramatic these two men have never ceded the reins to anyone on their own staffs let alone to be on a staff with each other Mm -hmm. it's such a gamble in my opinion this is the kind of stuff that they manage out of the talent in college football but yet they they make these assumptions that they can brute force it. I just think the ego here, it's hard to quantify ego, but this is a pretty good case study for doing so. 
Right. You know, just listening to you talk about it, it makes me wonder about the typical dynamics between a head coach and one of his coaches who calls plays. I, okay. I, I, don't, I don't have experience on the sideline or the press box. I don't know what those dynamics are like over the course of a season, but they must be complicated, right? Even just ordinary, normal head coach, play caller dynamics sure. have to be complicated. Yes. I mean, Kiffin is, Kiffin is famous for pulling back the veil, and he did it, I think, to his own benefit, as, as Lane is wont to do. Uh, for working for the, the world's greatest micromanager at Alabama in, in Nick Saban. And he talked at length about how, look, you know, it, it's no longer heresy to say, hey, we need to pass to set up the run, for instance, just something like that, for instance, I, uh, you know, or, hey, I want to go out in trips and throw a lot of bubble screens specifically to get the box clear for the third quarter. Hypothetical, I'm making all this up, right? That stressed Nick. And Nick had total faith in Lane. That's why he hired him. They're, they're, you know, obviously, there's such an, an interior evaluation process that goes on for everything at Alabama. There's like six books that have been written about it. But this is different to me. This is different. I know reports have been good coming out of summer camp because if you haven't noticed College Station, that's like the Iraqi Ministry of Information. Like, I, I, They're not going to tell you it's bad. They're not. They told you things were clicking before they lost to App State. I'm serious. Go pull up. Go pull up local coverage of A and M before they lost App State. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You did. There were no canaries in the coal mine. So mm-hmm. I, I am going to be skeptical. And and I'll say it for Cade. You know, when the inevitable confrontation happens, a lot of us are going to derive a certain level of like, like there's going to be a little mirth in this. There's going to be a little Schadenfreude because Bobby is not a good human being and continues to get these chances. He could have hired any other play caller, by the way. He did not have to hire this man. Mm-hmm. All right, Stephen. Man, goodness gracious. Glad we asked you that question. Let's go to what is our last question, but we can take it in a lot of different directions because we've got about five minutes to play with here. We we often play a game, you know, with a golf tournament or the March Madness tournament of how many teams would you need to make the likelihood of winning equal to the field? What's the least number of teams you need to, to counterbalance a field bet? So in golf, it's often, you know, seven, eight, nine golfers. If you take this top seven or eight, nine golfers, you get about 50% of the chance and the field can be an equal bet on the other side. In this year's NCAA, in terms of winning the whole thing, how many teams would you need, Stephen, to give us the field and feel like you were getting kind of, we both had about even like. And feel free to name those teams if you'd like. Against two, Georgia? No, like just Georgia, like, so, are we saying like. Like, so we gave you. I mean, if, if you think say, it's Georgia, you're going for one. <laughs> if we gave you Georgia, Michigan, we'll give, Ohio you, some, State, we'll give you more. If you think it's, uh, if you want to take uh, the bet, say the top three are Georgia, Michigan, Ohio State. If we okay. gave you all three of them, uh, would you rather have them or the field? Oh, oh, I get to go. We get to go 133 deep. Oh my. Um, ooh, okay. I love, I love this exercise, but unfortunately I have been afflicted with a lot of nihilism about this sport in the last five years. And I think that there's Uh-oh. a cliff. I do. So what you're asking me, what you're asking me to do is, is to, is to put, point at the edge of the cliff. Is that, that's what you're asking. That's me. right. That's right. So you're you like- have Georgia. So you have, you have Georgia, you have Alabama, you have Ohio state and Michigan pending, I think, you also have a 230-day offseason, so I talk myself all the way around things. So I'm going to come back around and say this is not the decline of Clemson, so let's go ahead and put Clemson Ooh, in there. That's right. Let's go, Ellis. I'm saying the cliff sits somewhere in the eight- or nine-team category, and what I mean by that is that yeah. over the course of the 12 games plus conference structure right now, that you're really, you really only have – a group of eight or nine. Well, you're asking a slightly, exactly. you're answering a slightly well, different but, question, which is how many well, teams you're answering those eight or nine teams cover. I'm making a number up 95, yeah. 98% of the probability. We want to know correct. how many teams would you take need to take to make it a 50, 50 bet. Yours is an interesting question. We'll ask in the future. I, too. I, I, I don't know. I'm going to be honest with you. I, Eric, I don't know because I don't know if you keep going and you keep going. If you keep going, I think there's such a disparity that I don't, yeah. I, you know, I don't know if it builds that. I guess that's what I'm getting at is when I look at teams nine through 40, I, I, I see rosters yeah. that are so inherently inferior. You start seeing the TCU Georgia finals again. You're thinking just, they can might, they might make the playoff, but they're not going to win the game. As an advocate for just dynamism, just, <laughs> tell me a different story, right? Just metaphorically tell me a different story, college football. 
that was a tough pill to swallow. Yeah, and that, that's sure. really where sure. I mean, just watching the absolute because you think about the way TCU got there, and from a story beat perspective, if you were to tell this in a narrative structure, that's that's good storytelling. The Baylor yes. game, the rushing the field goal, Sonny Dykes in general, the close games, eking it out, losing a conference championship game, and still making the field, and then you see what is essentially, as I said before, a re- and a max a maximizing of all efficiencies and a reduction of uncertainty, and that's what Georgia is. So. <laughs> Well, this is so also me using a lot of English, a lot of English class to answer a lot of math questions because <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. I got kicked out Ole Miss. So what can I do? Steven, you, but you named, go ahead and give us, walk us to the edge of the cliff. We, we gave you the first three, but tell us the other teams you could see actually winning this thing. They're not going to be TCU in the finals. You could see, you, may, you named Clemson, no. for example. So uh, if we, yeah, it, Georgia. So, so we started with Georgia, Michigan, Ohio State. You gave me that. Uh, obviously, we'll add LSU. We'll add Clemson. We will add USC and Texas and Alabama. Oh yeah, sorry, yeah. I, I said Alabama the first time. So yeah, Alabama um, and Penn State. I think that feels buyer. Uh, look, feels buyer beware. Yeah, feels buyer beware. If we're talking about a situation in which you can handle both Michigan and Ohio State and acquit yourself completely, like. I have not seen that yet. I'm not saying it's not possible. I just haven't seen that yet. Whereas all the other schools I just named you in the modern era have been able to provide that resume. Well, you mentioned Texas and they don't have that resume. Um, oh, come on, man. The Rose Bowl wasn't that long ago. <laughs> well, that's that's true. Modern era. We, I guess we can I'm, count I'm, that. I'm pumping. I'm trying to pump you up here. Um, Thanks, man. Steven. I appreciate that. If, um, if, if you believe the conspiracy theory that those two schools knew they were going to the league when they made their last two hires. And I do believe that because I've been told by enough people in the industry that Sarkeesian was sought out specifically. They made the change with Herman specifically because they knew they were going to the SEC and they wanted someone with a personnel experience. It had hiring Steve Sarkeesian had nothing to do with scheme and everything to do with his ability to recognize and understand how to work in SEC personnel. That's my informed opinion. All right. Well, we're going to end on a note. That's a good note to end on. He has he has succeeded in that so far. We'll see if he succeeds on the field. Steven, thank you much for making time for us, especially this time of year. Always a pleasure to talk to you, bud. Thank y'all for having me. I love coming on. Thank y'all. Steven Godfrey at 38 Godfrey on Twitter. You can see him on Washington post. He's got a great podcast split zone duo. We're regular guest here on Wharton Moneyball. That has been our college football preview for the 2023 season. That has been another hour of sports analytics here on Sirius XM for the whole crew. Audie Weiner, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen in absentia, boss man Matty Datz, the associate boss man Deion Simpkins. This has been Cade Massey. Thanks for listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.